Hey, good morning, family. Good to see you guys. Good to see you guys. Hey, we are in a series called All of Christ for All of Life. And uh, today we're going to look at just how exalted Jesus really is. So um, if you would open your Bibles up, we're in Colossians, uh, still in chapter 1. And uh, if you would give your, your attention to the reading of God's Word. Would you stand as we read today? Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. Let's pray, family. Dear Jesus, we love you so much, and we are here to worship your name, and I ask that your name would be lifted above every name and title. And Lord, we live in a place that, uh, in a time that there's not a lot of sacred spaces. There's not a lot that's sacred anymore. Everything's kind of casual. And uh, so Lord, I thank you that there's still places even in your church that, that you make sacred spaces, and we pray that you would do that today. You do that through the creeds and the hymns and communion and through your word today. Make this a sacred space. Dwell with us today in a special way. Make yourself known to us through your word. We need you. We need you to tell us what reality is so we can live in it. We need you, Jesus. We thank you for being with us. Amen. Amen. Nikki Gumbel is an Anglican priest. Have you guys ever heard of Nikki Gumbel? Anyone? He's an Anglican priest. He's a developer of the Alpha Course, which is like an introduction to Christianity. It's a witnessing uh, group and tool. He's also uh, helps develop the Bible in One Year app. Some of you probably have that on your smartphone. Uh, when he was 18 years old, he tells a story. When he was 18 years old, he went off to university, and as a freshman, his first year at the university, he read the entire New Testament in one week. Nikki became convinced that it was true, but he was reluctant to follow Jesus because, get this, he thought his life would become dull and boring. He thought he would have to give up all enjoyment if he followed Jesus as his Lord and Savior. But what he found was a joy that was not dependent on his circumstances, but rather it, it was rooted in the person of Jesus, who was anything but dull, boring, or small. You see, one of the pervasive messages of our culture is that Jesus is too small to give us total spiritual satisfaction all by himself. He's an exalted man. He's a wise teacher. He's a good moral person. But he needs something 
else to kind of give a little boost to him, to, to really give us that total spiritual satisfaction. And we're all tempted to believe that we need to add something to Jesus. You see, you and I, we live in a society much like the city of Colossae that does not so much reject Jesus outright, but rather devalues Jesus. We live in a society that devalues Jesus by claiming uh, spiritual security and satisfaction comes from pulling the best of different religions and philosophies and rituals. Our culture influences us more than we realize, brothers and sisters. And what we need is to be shown again and again and again, one might argue week after week after week, we need to be shown how majestic Jesus is. That's what we do every week through the songs and the singing and the sacraments, the sermons. That's all that we're doing every week. We're putting in front of our face how majestic Jesus Christ is. That's the big idea today, the message. We grip Christ more tightly when we see how exalted Jesus is. We grip Christ more tightly when we see how exalted he really is. We need poetry and prose and songs to turn our ears into eyes so that we can see how great and majestic Jesus is. And that's exactly what Paul supplies in the verses that we just read this morning. Paul has written a beautiful hymn, or some would call it a creed. It's a very condensed, compact statement of who Jesus is and what Christians believe. And the purpose is to lift Jesus up before our eyes. And this creed, this hymn, breaks down into two stanzas so that we might grip Christ more tightly by faith. The first stanza emphasizes Christ's identity. The second stanza emphasizes his activity, his identity and his activity. And so we're going to go through each of those stanzas in turn. All right, you guys with me? All right, three of you. Sounds good. All right, here we go. In Christ is what we have. In Christ, we have the fullness of God made visible. The fullness of God is made visible in Jesus Christ. Let's go to verses 15. 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, he's talking about Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So each phrase of this hymn is packed with theology. So just keep your Bibles open. We're just going to go through the different parts of these phrases. We're just going to walk through the phrases and just kind of hopefully absorb and just kind of take in the immensity of Jesus. Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's kind of a curious juxtaposition. He's the, you can see what you can't see. Through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the clearest and most complete revelation of who God is. Everything before Jesus gave a glimpse or gave us pieces of who God is. But in Christ, we have the full picture of God right there before our eyes. This means that through Jesus, we can truly know God because he is God made visible. In fact, Jesus talked about this all the time when he ministered on earth. 
Just one example here is John 14, verse 9. Jesus, he's talking to his disciples, and Jesus said to them, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? To see and know Jesus is to see and know God himself, period, full stop. If you want to know what God really loves, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God really hates, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God expects of you, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks, look at Jesus. Hey, you want to know what the voice of God sounds like. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Here's what this means for us, brothers and sisters. It means that you and I don't have to be agnostic. Isn't that great? I mean, you can if you want to be, but you don't have to be. I don't have to be agnostic about God. It means that we can actually and accurately know God. And that's pretty good news. It also means this, everything else that claims to show us God is either a shadow or it's speculation. Why would you go to any other source to know God? Jesus is the fullness of God, made visible. Jesus is the creator of all created things. Paul uses this phrase, the firstborn of all creation. This verse, in its context, is actually emphasizing the divinity of Jesus Christ. His superiority over creation. Not a part of creation, but he's over and against creation. Paul is saying that Jesus sits in a place of predominance, or preeminence, you could say. Some people have misinterpreted this verse to mean that Jesus was literally born first. He's the firstborn, meaning they say that he was born first as a part of God's creation. The first person to actually teach this doctrine was a pastor in Egypt named Arius. He and his followers taught that Jesus was the highest of God's created beings. So Christ was higher than man. He's an exalted man, but he's not exactly God either. He's lower than God because God created Jesus, they would say. He's not fully God. Arius' teaching was condemned as heretical at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. That was a long time ago. And that's, by the way, where we get the Nicene Creed. It is correcting that. It is discipling people and addressing heresy in that creed, in all the creeds, actually. That teaching of Arius has held on over the years, and it's a foundational teaching in the Jehovah's Witness religion to this day. It is a devaluing of Jesus by misreading Scripture and ignoring other Scripture. There's much we could say about this, but we only need to look, get this, to the very next verse. Look at verse 16. It's the firstborn of all creation. Why? Because, or for, verse 16. For by him all things were created. It doesn't say by him all other things were created. It says by him all things were created. Meaning he was not created himself in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible. Paul's saying, when I say all, I mean all. I mean everything. 
If nothing at all existed before Christ created it, then that means Christ himself is not created. He has always been. Jesus is eternal. He is God himself. He is not God's creation or God's errand boy. He is God. The point Paul is making as we look at the rest of this verse is that Christ is superior to everything in the universe because he created all things, get this, for himself, for his own glory. Christ is superior all over, over all demons and devils and angels and spirits. And yes, there is a spirit world. That's why he says visible and invisible. And he is superior over that. He is superior over all political power, social movements, and anything that would exercise authority, whether that be evil or good. He just reigns supreme over that. That's what Paul is saying. And why? Because he ultimately created them. It's analogous to the authority that parents have over their children by virtue of the fact that they made them, in a sense. The family reflects something of Jesus Christ. That's why this series is called All of Christ for All of Life. All of Jesus has something to say about everything that's going on in your life and my life. The family reflects that. If you cause something to exist, get this, if you cause something to exist that did not exist before, you are by definition superior in authority at least over that. And the authority that parents have in a very limited scope over their creation, so to speak, Jesus has exponentially over all creation regardless of how powerful it is or how beautiful it is. It's showing us something of Jesus Christ. It's a really neat thing. So, so here's my point. Why would you put your hope in anything else? Why would you put your hope in any part of creation to save, secure, or satisfy you? Why would you do that? It doesn't even make sense. Why would you communicate with dead family members? Why would you communicate and consult stars, horoscopes, why would you want to talk to angels or worship the earth or ask the universe to guide us? They are all less than Christ. So why waste your time with something secondary when you can go to primary, when you can go to superior? Why are you selling for something that's inferior? Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus is the fullest of God because he's the sustainer of everything that's created. He's not just the creator of it, but he also sustains it. This is in verse 17. And he is before all things. By the way, I'm not going to take any time on that, but that talks about the eternality of Jesus. Jesus has always been God. He didn't become God. He's always been. He is before all things. Nothing came before him, right? And in him all things hold together. All things hold together. Christ not only did something in the past through creation, but he's also doing something presently. There's an ongoing activity of Jesus Christ. Check this out. Jesus holds everything together. Jesus means he's actively sustaining, get this, everything in the galaxy right now. And just let that blow your mind for a minute. A law of nature, like gravity, is not doing that. An invisible force and virtue, like love, is not what's holding everything together. A person is. That's how epic Jesus is. 
A person is holding everything up and everything together so that it does not fly apart. Every molecule in your body is being sustained by the will of Jesus Christ the Lord. Every neuron that's firing in your brain to give you thoughts, even as I'm speaking right now, is because of Jesus Christ. And not just for you, but imagine this. Just imagine this. For every person on the planet and at the same time. Every star hangs in the stratosphere because Jesus holds it there. Every piece of fruit hanging on every tree in the Amazon jungle hangs there in place because of the sustaining power and will of Jesus Christ. Every hair that holds onto our head is only there until Jesus says, let go. (laughs) Think about that time next time you get a haircut or brush your hair. Jesus is the fullness of God. And he is to be exalted above all gods and all goodies. There is nothing small, wimpy, incomplete, boring, ordinary about Jesus. Jesus is Jehovah God. To have Jesus is to have total spiritual satisfaction and security. We do not need to add any folk religion or philosophy or bits of mystical wisdom or spiritual exercises or, get this, even moral deeds to round out Jesus. There's nothing to round out. There's nothing to fill up. He's full. He's the fullness of God. He can't take anymore. As if we could give him anything. He's the full. Do you see what I'm saying? He's full. The fullness of God. When was the last time that Jesus was this exalted in your mind, beloved? When was the last time that you saw him as superior of all the created things that you interact and interface with in your daily life? When was the last time that you saw Jesus was able to satisfy you? Because he's the fullness of God, not a derivative. I hope you see that today. In Christ, we have the redemption, full redemption of creation made certain. The full redemption of creation made certain. Look at verses 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn of creation. Look, see how the, see how the hymn goes now? We're on a second verse. He's the, he's the firstborn from the dead. See how that's matching up? Firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He might be highest and exalted, right? For in him all the, there is explicitly, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him reconciled to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth. See, see, that's matching up with what we said earlier, Paul said earlier. On heaven, on earth, by making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul has been emphasizing the identity of Jesus, and now he's going to emphasize the activity of Jesus. Jesus is not only creator, he is also redeemer. Or you could say he is not only creator, he is recreator. He brings it back from the dead and gives it life. 
Look at verse 18 again. We'll hone in on this. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Though Jesus is creator and he rules over all things, you and I, we don't see him ruling over all things right now. I mean, obviously something has gone terribly wrong. Sin has entered into creation through human rebellion. And that's kind of a a real great working definition of sin. What people say, well, what is sin? Sin is rebellion against God's definition of reality. God says, this is how the world works. And we say, nah, the world works like this. I'm going to do life like this. So I'm going to continually ram up against reality. That's sin. Sin has infected not only every human heart, but also the natural world from sea to shining sea. It is the source of evil, corruption, and ultimately death. Everything ultimately gets blended. It dies. Turns to dust. And that's because of the power of sin in God's creation, in the world, in the earth. But part of the good news of Jesus is that Jesus stands at the headwaters of a universe-wide resurrection movement that has broken into history by virtue of his own resurrection, which we celebrate every Easter. The resurrection that was supposed to happen at the end of history, Jesus is resurrected. It's happened in history. It's happened in time. It's broken in to time and space. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ. God will not wait to the end of time to redeem what he has created from the grip of death and decay. God has begun restoring creation to its proper order right now. How? How is he going to do this? How is he doing this? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ when he raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. That's why Paul says in this verse, Christ's resurrection is the beginning. It was starting something. The beginning, the firstborn from the dead. His resurrection proves that God is redeeming creation right now, starting with his people. That's why he says he's head over the church. His people, the church, those that put their faith in Jesus Christ. God has brought us back into order with himself through the blood of the cross and the empty tomb. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, family. In Christ, all the sin, all the rebellion in our heart has been dealt with through the cross and the empty tomb. It was put to death. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, but he, speaking of Christ, he was pierced for, get this, our transgressions, not his. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our sins have been punished through Christ's death, and now we have peace with God. Listen, there's nothing that you and I have to do to make God happy with us. Christ has done it all. We obey him as a way of saying thank you, purely. There's nothing we do to appease God. 
Christ has done that. But not only that, it gets even better than that. We are free from the power of sin, not just the penalty of sin. Sin no longer rules over our lives. Sin no longer has authority in your life. Jesus does, which brings life. When Jesus rules in our life, it brings life. It's springtime. After a dead winter, life starts popping up. Fruit starts popping up. He started his restoration now and will complete it when he returns. And then, I mean, as if this couldn't get any better, Paul says this in verse 20. He tells us something so wonderful, it's hard to believe it's true. He says that the people of God, those who have been redeemed by Christ's resurrection, are experiencing a taste of what the rest of creation is going to experience fully. Full life. New life. Life without sin and death weighing it down. Look at Colossians verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says, And through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things. Well, what's including all things? Well, everything in heaven and everything on earth. That's a Jewish idiom or a colloquialism. It means everything up there and everything down here. Everything. By making peace by the blood of his cross. What Paul is saying here is that through the cross and the empty tomb, the resurrection, all things will be put into their proper order, into their proper place, again, under King Jesus' rule. He is not teaching universal salvation of all humans. He is teaching universal renewal of God's creation. And it is a beautiful thing. Paul is putting in a very compressed form what he says more fully in Romans chapter 8. I love this passage. Check out verses 20 through 23. He says, for creation, he's not talking about people. He's going to talk about people in a couple of verses. He's talking about everything else God has created. For, for creation was subjected to futility. It means no matter what it does, it ends up dying. It was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free. From its bondage, there's going to be a jailbreak. <laughs> there's going to be a jailbreak. Its hope is not that it'll be destroyed. It's hope that creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom, get this, that creation will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see the connection between what creation wants to experience and what we experience through the resurrection? There's a connection there. And he goes on, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Which childbirth is painful if you haven't experienced it. That's what I've been told. It's painful. It takes a long time sometimes. It's been, it's been long and it's groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, now here's where we come in, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons. What does that mean? Namely, the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about the resurrection of our bodies. This is a gorgeous passage of the gospel. Humans are not the only ones groaning 
and crying under the corrosive power of sin and death, guys. All creation in heaven and earth wants to be free from its power because unlike us, it didn't have a choice in the matter. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, all creation will be restored to its right order in him. Paul wants us, here's the point, Paul wants to enlarge our vision of Christ's redemption. It's even bigger and better than we thought it was. It is no small thing, his redemption. It's not limited to Kitsap County. It's not even limited to the state of Washington, his redemption. It's not even limited to the Milky Way, his redemption. Jesus is no small God. And he will bring nothing less than the renewal of all that belongs to him. This means that the world God created is not like his practice run for the real thing he's going to make. There's nothing in the creation account that leads us to believe Jesus made a disposable world or a disposable people. The scholar Richard Mellick says this, to leave an aspect of creation still in the grasp of sin would allow sin to triumph over grace. Such a thought is unthinkable. Although sin dominated over the created world, bringing eternal repercussions, sin does not rule totally forever over any aspect of creation. This is the good news that we proclaim about King Jesus. If Christ really is restoring all things, whether in heaven or on earth, to himself through the cross and the resurrection, then what we do on the earth and what we do in our physical bodies matters, guys. It matters. That means the work that you commit yourself to every week of your life counts. Your work has value. As Christians, our work is not just a way to pass time before death knocks it all down anyway. It's not glorified thumb twiddling before we die. Get this. Our work is the proclamation of the kingship of Jesus over everything that's been touched by sin. When we go to work as Christians, we are bearing witness to something through the work that we do. It's not just for a paycheck. That's how Jesus affects our work. Look at Ephesians 2.10. It says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then you have 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Now, this is the last verse of an entire chapter about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means. Here's how he ends this. He ends it on a practical note. Therefore, after all I've said about the resurrection of Jesus, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, in Christ, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. The resurrection shows you that your labor is not in vain. He ties that together. The resurrection of Jesus, I'm talking about what happened on Easter 2,000 years ago. The resurrection means that the part of our work that is in the Lord, that is patterned after our Lord's work, acts like signposts. They're like signposts pointing people to the reconciliation of all things under the lordship of Jesus. That's coming. 
It's going to be kind of like this, but permanent and better and worldwide. It's a sign. It's not the real thing. It's a signpost pointing to that. So as Christians, we go to work differently. The resurrection changes the meaning of work for us. Do you see how it's all of Christ for all of life, by the way? Have I, have I threaded that yet? It's not just doctrine. It affects how you go to work, whether that's in the home or in the shipyard. See, as Christians, when we mend broken bodies, as Christians, we are mimicking our Lord who will restore bodies from death. It'll be kind of like this, but way better and eternal. It's just a sign of it. When we educate and cultivate and expand young minds as Christians, we, we mimic our Lord who will give us the ability to understand the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God. Like Habakkuk 2 says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters covers the seas. When we repair ships from rust or renovate apartment complexes from damaging mold, we mimic our Lord who will bring new life to everything sin has touched and is corroding. We're mimicking that. We're pointing toward this. The resurrection completely changes how you and I enter the workforce as Christians. It's part of our worldview that we work through. In a certain sense, Christians should be the happiest and the hardest workers on the payroll. Because we know why we're going to work. We're going to work for something bigger. We see something bigger coming. We know that our work is not merely for a paycheck like everybody else is doing their work. But it bears witness to something that is cosmic. And guys, it is beautiful. It's just flat out gorgeous. Do you see how exalted and unboring Jesus is? I hope you do. There is nothing miniature about Jesus Christ or the life that we have been called to live with him. We worship no small Christ, and he brings no small redemption. Praise his name. Praise his name. And we're going to continue worshiping the Lord, and then I just want to pray for you, all right? King Jesus, we love you. We worship you. You are the fullness of God, and in you we have the full redemption. We thank you that you've started that now in your church. You've started that now in your people believe in you. You are changing lives. You are producing new fruit. We do see that right here. And we pray that that would spread that the good news of Jesus would go out from here and it would infect others and they would bear fruit and people would see how great you are. They would see how exalted you are. Lord Jesus, would you change us? Would you change us by a vision of who you are? Change how we go to work. Change how we, we work with our children and raise them. How we interact with one another. We love you, Jesus. Amen.